Everybody get your Bibles out and let's turn to Psalm chapter 13. As you know, we've been on this series called Poured Out the Way We Worship. And what we've been talking about is who we are as God's people and how we worship Him. We began with saying that worship is not as much singing or um, some of the things we tend to call worship as much as it is a pouring out of our lives. Being willing to share everything we are with God. Being willing to surrender. Being poured out. And our premise was this, that it's not until we empty ourselves of ourselves that God can actually fill us up with who he is. And that worship is a pouring out to him and then allowing him to pour himself into us. And so we've, we've talked about what happens when we come to him and how we surrender to him, everything in our lives. We've talked about who we are as a community of believers when we gather here, why, why the, the lifting of our hands and the shouting and the singing, why is everyone so happy? Listen, I was at the UT game last night. You want to talk about some people happy. I mean, going crazy, going nuts, saying crazy stuff. It was so much like a church service to me, all right? They all know, they, they're all having the shared experience together. They all know the same songs, right? They sing these little songs, fight, fight, make them eat. And there's all this, those of you who haven't been to a game, you got to, it's, it's amazing. These people, I mean, they, they're all like friendly to people around them. They're having a great time together and people are talking and they're, they're super excited. It's just amazing. And they sit there or stand there for three and a half hours. Never again will I apologize for a 90 minute worship service. Time, of course, is one of our great commodities, most precious commodities in American culture. But if you're really interested in whatever you're spending time on, it's not a big deal. We talked about a couple weeks ago what this is, what the Bible teaches us about how we're wired. And we're wired to, to actively worship God with our voices, with our hands, with our bodies, with our minds, our emotions. And then, uh, of course, last week we talked about how important it is for us to love our neighbor as ourself, that when you love God there's, and you pour yourself out in love to God, there's really no choice. You must pour yourself out in love to your neighbor. They are connected. They are linked. There is no way to love God and not love your neighbor. How important that is. And this week I want to challenge all of us to think in a, in a different way now about being poured out. I want us to think about worshiping God in the midst of struggle, in the midst of a challenge, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of um, confusion, frustration. I want to talk to you about how to worship God in honesty. That honest worship is really the only worship that's acceptable to God. And so I want you to see how honest the psalmists were. And we're going to take a little tour of the psalms, all right? We're going to take a little tour of the psalms. Get your pen out. We're going to look at Psalm 13. And I want to I teach this morning on how to worship your way through it. How to worship your way through it. 
Let's pray before we read. Father, would you teach us? Would you give us wisdom and insight? Would you show us who you are as we read your word? Change us as we read it. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 13, verse 1 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Well, that's encouraging. Did you ever feel forgotten by God? I like to read this psalm out of the New Living Translation. It says, oh, Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? <laughs> Forever? How long will you look the other way? You ever felt like God was looking the other way? Like somebody else was getting blessed because God was paying attention to them, but not you? That's how this psalmist felt. I have. I've felt that way. He continues Verse 2, how long must I struggle and wrestle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes. The NIV says the light to my eyes. Restore the light to my eyes or I will die. Verse 4 says, don't let my enemies gloat saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. Hey, hey, have you ever prayed this way? I think far too many of us as Western American Christians have not prayed this kind of honest, gut-wrenching prayer. Worship can only... Be honest, because if it's not, it turns to ritualism. It turns to formalism. It turns to something outside rather than something inside. What I want to challenge you today to think about is God is not afraid of your doubts. He is not afraid of your struggle. He is not upset for you to talk to him about it, for you to open up your heart and be poured out to him and to invite him into whatever you're facing. David is really good at this. He's, he's the writer of Psalm 13. He talks a lot about his enemies. It's really interesting. In another section of the Psalms, he talks about how he wants God to break the teeth of his enemy. <laughs> break his teeth? It's like his enemies screaming at him, ah, God, break off their teeth. That really hurts. He's gut level honest. Look at what he, how he finishes, though, because in all of David's psalms, there's a pivot point. There's a point at which it turns. It tends to make you think that David might have been bipolar, but I, I don't think he was. I think he wasn't bipolar. He was discovering something that would change him. He was discovering a God who was with him in the very deepest, darkest moments of his life. Look what he says in the last two verses. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice. What? I will rejoice? Didn't it? Wasn't he just talking about his enemies having the upper hand, about how God's looking the other way? And, I, and yet he's saying to himself, I'm going to rejoice because you have rescued me. I've seen it. I've seen it happen. Verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. If Jesus is Lord over your life, right, he can't just be Lord over the good times. 
What we see here is the psalmist saying, you are Lord even in the difficulty. You are God even in the midst of the tragedy or the struggle. If Jesus is Lord of only your life when things go right, then you're not the kind of worshiper the Father is seeking. Jesus said, I'm seeking the kind of worshipers that will worship the Father in spirit, which I think has to do with faith, the unseen, and truth, honesty. Honesty. Worship isn't about escaping or drugging or muting our pain, but about bringing it to the feet of Jesus. It's about bringing everything to him, identifying and letting him identify fully with your pain because Jesus knows about suffering. Jesus knows about suffering. He joins you in your suffering. He knows what it's like. Laying it before him, surrendering him. If Jesus is Lord over your entire life, then worship necessarily includes the full spectrum of emotions and experiences. This is what the Psalms teach us, that we can't, just bring, uh, we can't just bring joy and happiness to God, we also bring pain and struggle. We're willing to be honest, we're willing to be open, we're willing to be, if you will, poured out. It always strikes me that Americans, when they're going through something difficult, if you, if you, if you watch on TV, any tragedy or catastrophe, and you see it, and the, and the news is there, and they're talking to them, and when they're talking about it, they, they start tearing up, and what do they do? They choke back the tears. We don't want to show other people that we're emotional. We try to keep it from coming out. Worship is not keeping it from coming out. Worship isn't stuffing it down on the inside. Worshiping is letting it out. Listen, you're wired that way. Actually, the rest of the world does it that way. If you see any catastrophe around the world when the cameras are there, what do you see them doing? Wailing, screaming, opening up. It's just part of how humanity is wired. There's something wrong with our intellectualism that says that all emotional behavior is irrational. It's not true. You are wired up as an emotional person. You're not just an intellectual person. Do we need to worship God with our intellect? Absolutely. We need to study the scriptures. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. But worship is only honest when we're willing to worship in the most difficult of circumstances. Look at Psalm 27. If you just turn over a few pages, I want you to see how David, how David prayed on another occasion. Psalm 27, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? This guy is crazy. One minute he's saying, where are you? And the next minute he's saying, I don't have to fear. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men again, advance against me to devour my flesh. <laughs> there it is again. Evil men advancing against me to devour my flesh. When my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then will I be, what does it say in your version? Confident? How could he be confident? How can he be confident when war is coming against him? How can he be confident when so many things coming against him? I, I, I think there's a secret and the secret is in the next verse. Look what it says. It says, one thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek. 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. David had a revelation of how to open up his heart to God. And while it was clear that he didn't take him out of every war, that he didn't deliver him like David thought he might, that it is clear that God was with him, was for him was fighting on his behalf, was turning him into someone who would trust totally and completely in him. See, I think this is the issue, is worship's not like a magic pixie dust we spray, spray on, on our circumstances and hope that they'll all go away. We're not trying to make the world go away when we come here. What we're trying to do is bring everything that we are, every circumstance, every failure, every issue, and we're bringing it here and letting God inhabit it. We're letting God come and be part of our journey. We are inviting him into our journey. Look, you can see this in Psalm 84. Turn over to Psalm 84 as we continue our tour of the Psalms. Psalm 84, turn over there and look at, this is the sons of Korah. This is a psalm about the dwelling place of God. Verse 1 says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and a, the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Just pause here for a second. I want you to see the writer of this psalm. There at the tent of meeting where the Ark of the Covenant was. You know what the Ark of the Covenant is, don't you? It's that thing in Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> Indiana Jones. <laughs> it's in a government warehouse somewhere today. Some of you may not know what the Ark of the Covenant is. It was a box, and there was, it was shaped. It was made of gold, and it was said that that's where God's presence dwelled. And, and, and inside of it was kept the Ten Commandments and, and Aaron's rod that, that budded and some manna to, to speak of God's faithfulness and provision. And so that's where God's presence dwelled. And you can see the writer of this psalm there somewhere near the tent. And he's writing this. And he can see a bird maybe coming and making a nest somewhere near the altar. And he says, he thinks to himself, I want to be like that bird that can just live here all the time. I want the, I want the presence of God to live in my life. I want to worship him. I want to dwell with him. Look what the next verse says. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. What is pilgrimage? Pilgrimage is the journey, the path, the hill, the valleys. Blessed are those who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. They're praising you in every Every way and every area, whether it's the high, amazing wonder of the mountain or the dark, dreary, discouraging valley, they've set their hearts on pilgrimage. Verse 6, as they pass through the valley of Baca, 
they make it a place of springs. Do you know what that word baka means? It means weeping. As they pass through a valley of weeping, God makes it into a place of springs. It becomes a place of nourishment and provision. God shows himself. They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. The psalmist is understanding this journey. Look, if you look down at verse 10, you can see it, a famous passage, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather live just here close to God's presence than to dwell with all the, the wisdom of the world or all the riches of the wicked. He gets it. He discovers it. The problem is, I think some of us struggle to do this. I think it's, we struggle to, to wrestle. Have you have you've ever felt like God is not there? What do you do? What do you do? Where, where do you go with that? How do you worship him in honesty? Well, it just so happens that in Psalm 73, just to the left, I want you to, I want you to look at this psalm too. This is an incredible picture of a guy who essentially was saying to God, he was writing and he was saying, man, what is it with everybody else? They all seem to be without problems. They all seem to be just getting along fine. People who don't even serve God, they, they experience all kinds of prosperity and, and how come they do and I have to go through all the trouble? I have to go through all the, the difficulty. What is this? Look what he says to God as he writes it. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped in verse two. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. He begins to talk about them. Skip down to verse 11. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? He says, this is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. And then verse 13 is so interesting. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Look at me for a second. Sometimes the difficulty we face is the very thing that will root out the, the improper or impure motivation for serving God. If we serve him just because we want our lives to go smoothly, then I'm not sure we're making him the God of our lives. We're making pleasure the God of our lives. We're making the absence of problems the God of our lives. There's something about God joining you on the journey and in the difficulty. Does he rid you of your sin? Absolutely. Does he free you of the shackles and the bondages that tend to grip you? Absolutely. But Jesus was very clear. He said it before he left. In John 16, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. Oh, how I wish he hadn't said that. He said, how, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. He said, take heart. 
take heart because I've overcome the world. Christ has overcome. But here in this land of where we're expecting, living in expectation of what God is going to, to do and is going to bring, we are going to face trouble. And as we face it, he wants us to include him. That's what worshiping in the midst of trouble is all about. That's what worshiping him and opening up and pouring out your heart to him is all about. Look what he says. He says, it's almost as if I'd kept my heart pure in vain because I wanted God to save me from all this. But verse 14, he says, all day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak like this, I would have betrayed your children. He's saying I, I, this wasn't the right way to think. Because verse 16 illuminates it for us. Verse 16 gives us insight into what he's thinking. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Didn't make sense. Until I entered where? Until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. The sanctuary of God is now in the hearts of men and women. We are the temple of God. There's something about pouring your life out. There's something about worshiping him and getting a perspective change. Worship doesn't always rescue you from the situation, but what it does is it invites God into the situation and gives you perspective about where you are and who you are and who God is. It gives you the long story. It helps you tap in to the long version of God's story and where you're headed and what's happening and how he is working in you. Jesus wants to make you an overcomer, but he can only do it when you're willing to pour yourself out before him and let him pour himself into you. People always want to be an overcomer, but guess what you have to have if you want to be an overcomer? Something to overcome. <laughs> There is something to overcome, but when we enter the sanctuary, when we enter this temple of worship, when we enter a time of honoring God and offering ourselves, our entire perspective shifts. If you've ever had a tragedy, a difficulty, a struggle in your life, you know how hard this is. My most difficult struggle happened just a few years ago when I was pastor at a church in Colorado Springs called New Life Church. And we had, I'd been pastoring at this church for many years and we had just come through 13 long months of recovering from our pastor failing morally and it being this just big issue and people talking about it, everybody knowing about it. And it was very painful to walk through that as a body of believers, but 13 months away from that scandal, we had another tragedy and uh, a young man with a thousand rounds of ammunition strapped to his body came onto our campus and began to shoot people. And we became one of those churches where a shooting occurred. And he began to, he began to shoot out in the parking lot and then he came in the doors and he was stopped by one of our security guards. It was an incredible feat of heroism on her part. But before the damage was done, two young girls lost their lives. Two teenagers, Rachel and Stephanie Works. And they died right there out in front of the doors of the church. I don't think I've ever been in a place where I um, 
felt more dark, more discouraged. And it was traumatic for our church. I, I remember I was up in the office when it happened and, and I was having lunch with the pastor and I was having lunch with Pastor Jack Hayford who was speaking that day at our church, if you know who he is. He's a brilliant man, brilliant leader, pastor. And we were having lunch together and I remember them bursting through the doors and their faces looked just struck with terror and they said, we have, we have shots fired in the church. It was so strange. I didn't, I didn't, pa I didn't pause, I didn't stop. I didn't, I didn't stop to ask Pastor Brady, uh, what should we do? I didn't stop to ask Pastor Jack, who's, I mean, if anybody should be asked, what do we do right now? It was Pastor Jack. I just ran out the door, and you know why? Because my son was down in the lobby. And I'm thinking to myself, where is my son? I'm running through the second hallway, of, through, the hall, through the children's areas, and I can hear the gunshots downstairs. I can hear the pop, pop, pop of the, of the guns. And I, I, I'm thinking to myself, God, where are you? I remember physically thinking about it. God, where are you? Where's my son? Turns out he was hiding in the parking lot behind a, a big trash bin. But in that moment, I remember my instinct calling out to God and say, God, where are you? Jesus, where are you? The amazing thing that happened to our church in the middle of that tragedy is we found out who we were. Now, let me just pause and say, those two girls, they were wonderful girls who'd been on many missions trips. They'd already decided to give up their lives for Christ long ago. Everybody loved them. They were sweet girls who were enjoying the presence of Jesus in heaven, but the rest of us, we were struggling to make any sense of it. I felt like I got, we got a, just a touch, just a small insight into what goes on in the rest of the world when people are martyred for their faith. And the struggle, how do you respond? I can tell you that that church responded in a way that nobody could predict. The sadness gave way to a holy, a holy righteous discontent with the way things were. We gathered that next Wednesday. This happened on a Sunday. We, we gathered on Wednesday night for a big family meeting. Thousands and thousands of people jammed the auditorium, packed with government officials and people from the city and people from the state and coming and to, to, to gather and to talk about this and, and, and begin the grief process. It was astounding. I got up and I began to, to share the scripture from Psalm 42, which says, my tears have been my food both day and night. There's a passage that says, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. And we began to sing. The band played. People began to sing at the top of their lungs. Tears pouring out of their eyes. The, the government officials, it was shocking. They were like, 
They thought they were coming to a funeral. We started singing the song we just sang this morning called Overcome. In fact, it was written during that season. And we began to sing, we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. But we began to sing it at the top of our lungs. The place burst and erupted with the presence and the hope that only can be found in God. The peace and the strength that can only be found in God. There was nowhere else to go. There was nothing else to do. It was a moment. It was a defining moment for God's people in that church. Our perspective changed that day. I can tell you, I, I kept leading worship. I, there wasn't a Sunday that went by for probably a year or more where I didn't get up on that stage and think about whether or not I could get shot that day. It was, it was trauma. There was PTSD all over the place. People had to go through counseling and grief and all of this process. But all the way through it, I, I would look over here in this section when I would stand on that stage and lead worship, and I would see David and Marie Works, the parents of those two girls. And I would see them there with their hands up and their tears coming from their eyes, worshiping God in the midst of their tragedy, in the midst of the ache. Listen. The world we live in is unjust. It is unfair. It is things are not right. And that's why God needs to come. That's why Jesus will return to set all things right. He is setting things right for you and me, even in the midst of this tragedy. Even in the midst of what we're facing, even in the midst of our struggle and our, our anguish on what we're facing. Last story I just want to tell, and it's Acts chapter 16, if you turn over there, and we'll finish here. Acts chapter 15. This is the, an incredible story. An incredible story. Acts 16, and we'll just, I'll just tell you the story, and then we'll pick it up at verse 25. This is Paul and Silas, and they've, they've delivered a woman from demonic activity. And because they delivered this woman, the guy who owned that woman, she was a slave, got all upset, frustrated, start, started, because um, he lost his way of making money, because under this demonic influence, this woman was telling the future. And so, so he lost all his money, and, and he, he, he reported them, and then they got thrown into prison. You can see verse 22. We'll just look, at the, look and see the, the context. The crowd joined in their attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten after they had been severely flogged. Flogging was incredibly painful. Ripped up your skin, ripped up your back. It was, it was, it was a beating. They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. What? What? They're in jail. They're beaten and bloodied. They are being tormented, and they're here singing. Now, think about it for a second. Think about it for a second. Do you think they were thinking, hey, maybe if we worship God, he'll bust us out of here? No, in fact, in a minute, we're going to see they get busted out 
and they don't leave. No, this is not what they're doing. They're singing. They're, they've found something beyond the tragedy and the difficulty of this world. They've found something. They found a rock to lean on. They found something that helps them see the bigger picture. They found someone who has peace that the world doesn't know anything about. They found somebody who has strength that's beyond their own strength. That's what Paul and Silas have found, and that's why they're praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were doing what? They were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and at once all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. He would have seen certain death had the prisoners escaped. Look at what happens. But Paul shouted in verse 28, don't harm yourself, we're all here. What? You got a jail full of criminals and they all stay. What is going on? Something is happening here. They were, uh, verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What do I gotta do to know what you're experiencing. Why aren't you gone? What is this that you believe in? Verse 31, they, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in this house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought him into his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. You don't know what can happen. Look, the jailer, the jailer, if we'll be the kind of people that will worship God in the midst of our struggle, that will allow him to be included in the midst of our circumstances, if we'll be the ones who will pour ourselves out. Listen, the jailer didn't come to Christ because of the earthquake. He came to Christ because of the singing and the praying at midnight in the stocks in the inner cell. Something can happen to you. Your perspective will change. You don't know what God will do through you if you will worship him in the midst of your pain, if you'll worship him in the, in the midst of the tragedy and the crisis. Because really, here's what I want you to see. The true essence of worship is found in the crisis in the trying of our faith, because it is there that we decide whether or not we will trust him. Worship is the affirmation. When you're willing to worship God through hardship, you cooperate with God's plans and purpose. When, you're, when you glorify God within the circumstances, no matter what they are, you agree with his desires and you agree with his will for your life. Worship is the affirmation that God is in charge and he is in control of your life and your circumstances. Worship says, I can't control this, I can't change this, but I know you can. Now the problem is, he may not change it, he will give you the strength and the peace to go through it, to go through that valley. There's no better option. You ever hear somebody say, you know, I never would have chosen that, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. You know why they say that? 
Because God met them there. Because something happened to them. If we could be the kind of people that would be poured out in worship in our, on our worst day, that is transformative to your life, to my life, and to the world. The kind of people who will invite God in no matter what. Just close your eyes, bow your heads here. Let, let the Lord speak to you. Let the Lord speak to you about whatever you're facing right now. Ultimately, worship is about faith. It's about confessing and believing that he's trustworthy. It's about saying, God, I don't know where you are, but there is nothing else that I can do. I'm going to give myself to you. It's putting faith in him. I want you to consider whether or not you will worship your way through. Worship your way through the, the tragedy. Worship your way through the, the struggle. Worship your way through the confusion. Worship your way through not knowing what all the answers are. We, we want to have all the answers. We want to get all the answers, but we can't have all the answers. And so we have to turn to someone. I wonder if you're here today and you're realizing, I, I, I've just been living on my own. I, I've really been worshiping God just as a means to get more things. Or I, I worship him in the happy times, but the sad times I tend, to, I tend to stop doing the very things I know to do. Maybe you're the kind of person that seeks him in the dark moments, but in the, in the good times you kind of ignore him. Listen, today is the time for you to surrender your life to him. Maybe it's for the first time or maybe it's for the first time in a long time, but I want to just challenge you. I want to encourage you all over this room. If you'll just pour yourself out to him, just be willing to say, God, I'm yours. You have the, you have, you have the only answers that I need. And I need you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you forward. But if you're here and you, you think to yourself today, I want what you're, have, what you're describing, Pastor Ross. I want that peace. I want the strength that only God can give. And you, wanna, you want him to fill you with that right now. Just lift up your hand right here, right here in this place, all over the room. Yep, I see you back in the back, way back over here, right here. Anybody else? Yep, right there. Strength that only God provides. Worship that only he can give I tell you what let's pray this prayer you pray this prayer with me it's not the words that I say it's the heart that you believe with but just follow with me along in this prayer let's have everybody say it alright repeat after me say this prayer say heavenly father thank you for Jesus who shows me the way by laying his life down I lay my life down Forgive me, cleanse me, heal me. All my sins, all my failures, forgive me. I give myself to you today. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your strength. I receive your grace here, now. Thank you, Jesus.